This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Quest for Evil, The Magic of the Key. And the author is Jenna Lindsay, and Jenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hi, Steve. This is your description of your book. To introduce your book to a friend in just a short sentence or two, you say, it's the story of an artist who discovers he can paint magic. His magic takes him and two other characters to a variety of worlds on an amazing journey of discovery. Wow, that sounds... (laughs) Really entertaining. So, thank you. Why did you write it? Where are you coming from? Uh, are you really are you really native to this planet? <laughs> I, I don't think so. You don't no, think so? I, I don't. Truly, uh, I think sometimes I must be uh, someplace else. I know that when I'm writing, I'm definitely in some other space when I'm doing my work, and I'll come out of my study and uh, be shocked to see sunshine because I've been someplace where it's snowing. <laughs> and I'll be, wait a minute, it's summer. And I, you'll be I, all I, wrapped up into a, in your uh, sweaters and coats. Yes. And, and it's yes. summertime, right? Yes, but, but this particular book, this, this, this novel, Quest for Evil, The Magic of the Key, uh, that I refer to as Nigel, I refer to my novels by the main character, who is not ne- always necessarily the hero, but always the central character. And so this particular story, I, I was living in Vancouver at the time, and I have always loved looking at the moon, and I, w- I tend to stay up very late at night. I stay up to midnight or 1 a.m., and I'm not always clear-headed at the time, but I stay up very late. I get up very early. I was up very late moon-watching and wondering, how would I get to the moon? I don't really want to get to the moon, but I would like to get to another world, but I want—I don't want all the clutter of technology. So I'm an artistic person. I thought, well, if I could, I'd get to other worlds through art. And therefore, to me, since I consider art to be very magical, I'd get there using magic and avoid all those nasty wormholes and, you know, strange space anomalies that are so troubling to space travelers. And you don't have to mess with asteroids and stuff like that. You might run into along the way, right? Right. And uh, (laughs) Vancouver was really conducive to the start of this uh, particular book um, because of its oceans, tides. It has beautiful stormy skies and mountains. So all of these elements are incorporated into the world of Atla, where I take you, or actually where the lead, the central character, Nigel, is taken um, magically first. And I say first because, as you just said, he ends up going to many, many worlds. 
so, with his other two characters that he meets. So he is on the planet Earth and, and ends up in this place called Alta. Atla. Atla, I'm sorry. Atla. That's okay. A-T-L-A, Atla. Atla. Okay, and tell us about Atla. What goes on in Atla? Well, it's interesting. Atla actually in itself has many magics, and uh, one of the magics, Eris, is the magic of the earth, so that if you were to cut down a tree and uh, create paper from it, you would then replant part of the tree to help the single tree grow, and you would have uh, paper that you could magically recreate again and again. You would only need one piece of paper, and you could multiply it magically many times. So I think that Atla, therefore, is a very um, ecologically advantageous place to be. And each person has their own special magics, not all of them particularly uh, strong. Um, not all of them have what is called in my novel uh, a gift. In other words, Nigel finds out that his art is actually, his ability to, to paint is called a gift on Atla and that it's true and therefore it's the gift of colors. And he in that way, finds out that he can paint when he can actually paint a door, and that door will take him and the other two characters to another world. And he doesn't always paint well, and he often paints under very stressful circumstances, uh, some of them funny, uh, some of them frightening. And I found as I wrote the frightening parts very unpleasant for me. <laughs> That's when I'd come running out of my study pulling at my hair, going, I don't want to do this. This is really too scary. <laughs> too scary. I need to tone it down or back off, and I don't like to interfere with what's happening too much. Well, so, you have to control your characters, <laughs> Jenna. Now, just you got to sit down with them and say, hey, you got to follow the rules here. Yeah, I, I, I get bossy with them after I've written <laughs> the story many times. I do several drafts, complete drafts, over and over again. And that's just my particular process of writing. And that's why I'll either work very long hours, late into the night, or sometimes I won't work for many days. And, and, and some writers would go, oh, my goodness, you don't have a regular schedule. And no, I don't. I, I go in and work and work and work and work, and then I'm until I come to what I call a natural pause. Well, tell us about why Nigel ends up on Atla. Why does he want to go there? Well, he doesn't realize that he wants to go. Um, the magic actually comes to him. He's painting a seascape. He's a seascape artist. And he's at the seaside painting this particular incoming storm. And as he's painting on Earth, he sees a line of purple, and he thinks, purple? That's very odd. And he's painting, and he's painting the purple, and the storm comes in, and it comes in really fast, nice and dramatic, and very sudden. And he's there without realizing that he's 
on another planet. He's already there uh, through this storm. But through his magic and the magic of a particular person on Atla who's been looking for someone with Nigel's particular talent. And, uh, for the, power, for the, for the, the... The ability to... to the gift of colors, mm-hmm. the ability to paint uh, doors, to, to see beyond and more clearly than others, and see in a different perspective, which I think artists do. And so she's been looking for assistance in a particular quest, and she finds Nigel, and, and, use, and there's a combination of magics with the, the three central characters. And color is very important. The color of the good magic, if you will use that word, because it is a good versus evil story, uh, the good magic, the color is purple. And the evil magic, don't anyone take this personally, uh, the color is blue. And I'm not sure that I picked those colors consciously. So tell us about these two other characters that Mm. uh, uh, are with Nigel. Yes. Uh, it's Bregan. I always like to have a strong female character. I don't like women who run away and trip. I deeply resent that. <laughs> uh, I figure if we're going to be running away, we're going to take off our high heels and we'll be in running shoes. And um, she's not going to run away. She's a very strong woman and she has a particular magic of her own. And the other character is uh, Padwick, and actually the person that Nigel meets first, when he be- he begins to realize that, gee, I was on a beach, and it was late day, it was almost sunset, and now it's the night, and he he's on the edge of a cliff, which he's not too happy about, he's afraid of heights. And as he backs away, he looks up, and he sees not one full moon, but two. I'm rather fond of moons, and I guess I just arbitrarily stuck two in for fun. <laughs> sure. Why not? Why not? You know, if you like one full moon, <laughs> why right. not have two? That's right. Yeah. And that's when he starts to suspect. At that point, he starts to suspect. You know, he notices, geez, he has teal-colored, you know, moss and not sand, and he's got auburn tree trunks in the distance, and this very different landscape all around him. And um, as he starts walking, trying to puzzle out what's happened to him, he, he, the first person he meets is Padwick, who has a particular magic of his own. And Padwick is uh, very amiable. He's, I suppose, the people might think of him as a comic relief, but he's, he's more than that. And they, to, the three of them together on their quest really discover their strengths. Which I which I liked very much as I wrote the story, and of course there's a villain as you call him. There's more yes. than one villain, but we right from the start and the right we meet him in the prologue. Yeah, Fogardal, uh, Fogardal. Now he has some kind of dark magic within yes. him. The Siskis magic, the dark Siskis magic, which when it manifests. Uh, in in some way, when he uses it in the prologue, it's a beam of blue that comes out of his forefinger. His and, and uh, we think that Fogardal is controlling the Siskis magic, the dark magic, 
Um, and maybe he is. I don't want to give too much away, but it's not always just the people. The magics themselves are very powerful. So the person has to be very strong in order to control the magic. What does he want? What does Fargadol want? He wants revenge. What does any villain want? If they don't want money, they want revenge, right? And he wants revenge, and he wants power, and he wants what he feels has been taken from him and is rightfully his. You know, he's a happy little megalomaniac. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's really that simple. (laughs) I thought there would be more to it, but... Ultimately, that's it. Or, or is there? Because, as I said, there's the two competing magics, the, the, the good and the evil magic, so, the good and the evil main characters. And Nigel is, is not necessarily the hero. As I said, he is the main character. It's his story. But he is, he's drawn to Atla. Um, and learns there that he's magical. And, of course, being on Earth, how much magic can you get away with that people don't think is just smokes and mirror? Or they'll burn you as a witch. Right, or they'll burn you as a witch, <laughs> yeah. Well, Fogardal, there must be something that he wants from Nigel. There is, yes. Probably his power. Could be. His magic. Could be. I, I don't mean to be cagey no, that's or fine. coy about it. But, no, you don't you know, have to tell us I, I, very much. I, you know, you'd have to read the book. <laughs> you have to read the book. <laughs> you have to read the book. That's right. <laughs> so Fogardal, is he in quest of being uh, the supreme being, the supreme power? He's one of the people who are, yeah. He's one. Is there other main characters that associate with him? Any well, others? not to give too much away, but there is another... Uh, faction, as it were, that is seeking uh, power. And the power, the, 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 the power that's being sought to control is actually the heiress magic of the world of Atla. So that would be the very core magic of a world, is the heiress magic, the, the magic that, you know, of the oceans and the, the sky and the trees and, you know, with all the well-being of the, the world. And these different people and factions want to control that particular power with their particular magics. And um, it's, it's, to me, quite interesting. It's uh, uh, a little unsettling sometimes in how it parallels some of the things that happen here. And I'm happy that Nigel went to Atla to experience this. And then, as I said, he doesn't get to stay on Atla very long at first. He, he and Bregan and Padwick um, travel through, they're tracking Fogardal, and they travel through uh, many worlds, too many worlds, through many doors, uh, tracking Fogardal uh, at first and then uh, tracking something else. Ha-ha. <laughs> One, uh, you've written about Siskis magic f- yeah. for our pre-interview, and you say here, the Siskis, the Siskis magic permeated the people of the world, twisting their minds until they destroyed themselves. Yes. It had gorged on the horrors of war, the atoms of destruction. 
Yes. Woo. <laughs> and when I get a chill covered, reading that kind of stuff. Margaret always waiting, you know, I mean, so yeah, the fiscus magic is pretty nasty. It wasn't my idea of a good time. Anytime I was writing with Bogardal or about the fiscus magic, I was very unhappy. I, I didn't say, oh, I'm feeling unhappy now. I'll go and write these things. In other words, I would be writing these things and start to feel very stressed and unhappy and alarmed and scared and thinking, oh, gee, I hope Nigel comes along to say something silly because this is really intense, and I want to back off from it a bit. We have just about a minute left. Uh, what do you want your readers to learn or take away from this book? Uh, I would like them, to, I don't know that they can, they will learn what they want to learn. Uh, there's a quote from that I, I have from Regan to Nigel at one point in the story, she says to him, he's, he's worried about how scary things can get. And she says, there will always be something scary in the world. You must choose whether or not to let it frighten you. And I thought, that's very wise. And I thought, where did that come from? Well, it came from Bregan, in my opinion, not from me. Um, so, and how I would like someone who's reading the book to feel, I always insist on a happy ending is hopeful, happy, and and to believe in magic, you know, that anything's possible with a happy ending. Jenna, how do we get your book? Uh, you can get my book through iUniverse, www.iUniverse.com, and uh, Barnes & Noble in the States, uh, Chapters Indigo in Canada. And do you have a website? I don't have a website, but I am on Amazon, and uh, you can find me on all sorts of and you can find Nigel on all sorts of other places that I'm not yet familiar with. I'm not very good with the Internet. Well, we want to thank you very much, Jenna, for sharing your book with us. Thank you Thanks. so much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you, Steve. That was Jenna Lindsay. She is the author of her book, Quest for Evil, The Magic of the Key. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. 
You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Colorblind Detective, and the author is Bill Capron, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and great to have you on the show, and everybody should love a mystery thriller, right? Well, they should. This is a, it's, it's a mystery written for a, a large general audience, hard-boiled to uh, cozy. Well, you say that because uh, the writing is G-rated, even though the crimes are not G-rated, as you say. Uh, but you deal with them from a distance, and so you state it doesn't appeal to the blood and guts reader, but it has that mystery adventure thrill to it. Yes, I think it does. I, I tried to write something my mother could read. <laughs> well, that's she good. Writer, I'm, sure, so I'm sure your mother really appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> Like all mothers would. <laughs> like all mothers would, is correct. So why write the book? Well, you know, I, I have, I've always liked to write. I've always, first of all, I always read mysteries. In our house, we always had mysteries, lots of mysteries. And I sort of grew up on Ross McDonald and Rex Stout and Raymond Chandler. And so these were the things I read. In fact, in many cases, over and over. And even today, I collect first editions from all three of those authors. So, you know, it's just that uh, I've always loved mysteries. My mother writes mysteries for the children's market. And so uh, when I retired from business at the age of 50, I said, I'm going to write. I found that, uh, you know, writing's not as easy as I thought it would be. You know, competing with from busboys to uh, housewives, it's pretty tough. <laughs> and this is the first of four manuscripts that you have written. About C.B. Green, yes. I've written four about C.B. Green, and they'll all be published over the next year. So C.B. Green is a private investigator who is colorblind, and that, as you say, colors a worldview where justice must be done. Now tell us more about C.B. Green. Well, first off, C.B. Green is very rich, but he doesn't tell anybody. But he doesn't like money to get in the way of his life. Secondly, he is colorblind, but his colorblindness is different. It's a colorblindness that's in his head, not in his eyes. And so it's bad programming. And through the next three books, that colorblindness is being lost, which is part of what goes on you know, in, the, in, the, in the process of these novels, is that he's becoming not colorblind. But uh, C.B. Green lost his girlfriend to a, a shooting uh, six years earlier. And when the police couldn't find the killer, he tried to find the killer and realized he didn't know the profession. So he went out to learn the profession. And he still hasn't found the killer, but that's also one of his driving, driving things. And CB also believes in justice. That is, he believes that, you know, sometimes the law does not extract justice. But he will always extract justice. He doesn't act as the judge or jury, but he 
builds up a situation like a bowl of agar or a culture of germs, and he lets them feed on, let them kill, let them basically sink themselves. So this is part of CB's philosophy. Well, you say that you'd like to be CB Green, but you're not that good. No, I'm not that good. <laughs> That's what you wrote. <laughs> but in knowing CB Green, you say, I've become a better person. Yes. In fact, I maybe expand that a little further. I have characters, lots of characters. And you write characters, you build them from people you know. You take good and bad from people you've met. But all of my characters match some two or three people I can put together, you know, and they're, uh, and so from these, you learn a lot about yourself, because you're sitting there introspecting on your character, and for example, when I write, I always write the dialogue first, so I might write 70,000 words of dialogue before I've written any uh, exposition, and you know, and then I'll, uh, I'll sit there and I'll put a plot around it, kind of thing, because if you let the characters talk, they take you to places you would never go to just thinking it through in your head. You can't flow chart the stuff that people will say. But from this, so I build these characters, and, and they're all a certain kind of character. And, and, and I learn more about my friends this way, but I also learn who would I like to know. What are these, these are the people I'd like to know. And maybe I'll meet a few one day. Now, right away, Jane Y., wife of a dead lawyer, Jack Y., comes to C.B. Grain, and right away we get a feeling for the intrigue of your story. I really like the way you open the story up, the book. Thank you. So what is Jane looking for? She sounds like a tough cookie. Well, Jane basically is looking to get the $25 million her gum-dwelling lawyer husband has squirreled away from the drug people. She wants his money, and she believes that, that someone has stolen the key to his safe deposit box with the access to the money. And he, she wants him to find it, and she knows he's only got two days, and after that it will probably be gone. So she wants CB to find the money. And as she said at the end, when CB says to her, why me? She says, I have a DA friend, and he says that you never lie, you never cheat, you never steal. He lies and he cheats and he steals all the time. So I figured he'd know. <laughs> so that's what she's looking for, is an honest PI to pick up a dishonest dollar. So CB's reputation turns into a, a real asset. Well, it precedes him in, in most things. And uh, in most of the stories, it's the same way. He lost someone to a horrible thing happening, and he tries to... Stop the horrors as it goes along. Because, I mean, this is a story really about coincidence. And the fact that all these coincidences come together because of one extremely evil person. And she's just one corner of it. You know, as, as he's out and about accumulating, what do you call it, uh, accumulating clients like flypaper. So do we have more than one plot line reverberating through this this mystery? Well, there's, ba there's basically three murders. Uh, well, there's been more, there were more like six or seven dead people, but there were three specific murders that key this. And uh, one is Jane Wise's husband who was murdered in the first place. Another one is a uh, businessman out in Richfield, uh, Washington, who was murdered for something that had happened 18 years earlier in college that he didn't even know about. And the third one is a, a girl who is shot by 
a boyfriend she ran away to see. And she died in CB's arms, and he said she was an unplanned client. She said, help me. He couldn't say no. CB Green's like most of us, you know. You get to be 40, 50, you can't do more than one thing in a row anymore. You know, and uh, being guys, we actually admit that. So we get there, we can't do more than one thing. CB doesn't want to have three tracks, you know, three things to sell, but he's sort of stuck with this and he has to do it. I think one of the things, too, about, you know, this, this whole thing is this, this thing with the, with the women. There are lots of women in CB's life. And CB doesn't look for women, so he's not after women. And by the very nature that he doesn't look, he's sort of a target. And so a big part of the book is CB is trying to figure out, well, he's always trying to figure out what do women think and why. And when you get to the end, you realize he's any closer than he was when he started. (laughs) But he's got a lot of women chasing him. Well, he's got two that are chasing him, but, you know, it's just this this whole thing of, uh, you know, he's an old guy. He's been around a while. He doesn't want some 28-year-old. He wants someone with some mileage, like himself. So that's the way I think. You know, people should match up with their own age group because they're the same kind or the same type of adult, at least from the standpoint of maturation process. So does he have a woman in his life who really is looking out for CB's best interests and really trying to help him? Um, no. <laughs> no. But, but, but two of the women from this, one of them will become the woman at the start of the, or in the middle of the next book, the next the story. So, because th- th- this book is not, you know, CB's life is not run by hormones. And he does the best he can to stay that way. But, for example, he comments on this one woman, Mona Varden, which is that she's not beautiful, but she is so exotic that there's a sexual attraction that he would not want to test his defenses against. Because he's a man with good defenses. He's, he's fought them off for a long time, and he can still do that. But he finds her to be, uh, that there's something about her that he's never seen before. And Mona's connected to the Jack Y, who we learn about everything right at the beginning of the book. Right. He's the, yeah, well, he's the dead lawyer. Jack Y is the dead lawyer, and Mona is the very kinky girl. Like I said, the crimes are not G-rated, but the writing is. Who is his best ally? Um, his best ally is uh, a woman who works at the uh, lawyer's office, and her name is De- Denise Richardson. Denise is just knows everything and everybody in Portland. He's never, you know, I mean, he always thought she was just another dumb, really beautiful female. And it turns out that all of a sudden, you know, he has a question. He asks her, which he's never done before. She has an answer, and he asks her other things, and there's answers, because she's just built up this eclectic group of friends through her 28 years alive and, and her seven marriages in 28 years that, uh, that she's just accumulated all this knowledge that suddenly makes her important to him. But he still tries to keep his distance from her. Because she has feelings for him. Well, he thinks that she just views him as an obstacle. You know, this, oh, hey, there's no one I can't get. And so it, this is something she just wants to beat, so to speak. She wants to get CB, add him to her, uh, you know, as a notch on her belt, so to speak. And he doesn't want to do that. So it's a, there's an ongoing sexual tension that, by the way, proceeds higher and higher in every one of the stories as it goes on. 
Now, does the colorblind detective, your book, does it uh, have all kinds of twists and turns, unexpected things happening that we go, what in the world happened? No. But, I mean, I watch, I watch a lot of, first of all, I read a lot of mystery books. And, you know, back in the uh, 30s and the 40s, it was the phone call. I can't tell you on the phone. I'll tell you when I see you, and then you get there and the person's dead. That's a device. It's a horrible device. They should shoot the people who wrote those devices. <laughs> you know, so the, uh, the, the thing is that, that things should happen logically. A person should say, oh, I could see that would have happened to me. You know, or they get to the end, they say, well, wait a minute, that's not possible. That's not the way it was. And then they go back and they read to it and say, oh, cool. He saw something I didn't, you know, that just went right by me, but he didn't hide it from me. So there's nothing hidden in it because a person knows the same amount as the author knows, which is that, you know, here's a book. <clears throat> it's written in the first person. And so you can't know more than the author in real life. You, know, you can only know what he knows when he knows, and it's told that way so that he's not sitting there making decisions on something that he didn't tell you. C.B. Green tells you everything as you read this book, so you know everything he knows. And the, and the questions you, go, you have to ask when you get to the end is, would I have drawn the same conclusions? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. But they were all conclusions that, to a certain extent, were affected by happenstance, which is something that, you know, is outside of the norm, which is that the three crimes were connected by the same person. And so, but, you know, from that regard, uh, you know, uh, the book deals in the probable. Things that, are, that would probably happen based on the situation that occurs, and they're not based on the impossible. This is not 24 with Jack Bauer knowing things he can't know. Besides the ones we've already talked about, is there any other character or characters that you just think the world of, like, wow, this character uh, is very unique, and uh, uh, the readers will never forget this person? Well, there's, there, there is a uniqueness sort of when you get the... I mean, you know, I've read this thing 30 times, at least, probably more, and I still have a tear in my eye when I get to the end of a certain... For a certain Three things come together. You say, that's just not possible. That's, that's just too sad, which it is. It was sort of cheating. It was so sad. But I still had to do it. But uh, in terms of characters, the, uh, uh, the wife of the man who was killed in uh, uh, Ridgefield is a very... Uh, she's, she's, a, uh, no, she's got an old-world kind of grief. She's got the kind of grief that she's not going to get over in three months. It's going to take her a while. They were very close. They were, they were understanding and in love with each other in a very complete way. And so it's going to take her a long time to get over it. And you feel this. You know this. Um, and the, the 80-year-old librarian whose, whose sons turned out to be such losers, um, and, you know, but that she's CB's friend, and she's been his friend for years, and she's been wanting to help him for years and, and got a chance to do so, and that she saw something that no one else saw. And... And no one else would have believed her, so she told CB, because he would believe her. Sort of. <laughs> and I think that those are the prime characters that are, that are in there. And then there's, there's the police. There's, there are two, two female cops and a male cop. The male cop is big and ugly and smokes about 80 cigarettes a day. And he's Irish. And there's an Irish uh, cop that works for him and, uh, or works with him. And they're both in homicide. And... She's a very nice person, and there's the, the, the blonde patrol cop who also works off and on with them, and 
she is a very, she's the kind of person who's so honest. And her honesty is another subplot that works its way through this story and every other story. And that she is so honest. And it's like he, he looks at, she's got too wide a hat to be involved in this kind of world, which is sort of true. She does. But those are characters that I like. Uh, I like a lot of my characters. And I made my bad guy really, really mean. In fact, I made like the, the four or five bad guys really, really mean. Probably meaner than people are in real Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> but they're pretty mean. <laughs> they're pretty mean. <laughs> a lot of sociopaths. That's for sure, unfortunately. Uh, Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, you can obviously get it online at any of uh, you know, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Uh, I have a website called colormedead.com. And that's C-O-L-O-R-M-E-D-E-A-D.com. And it uh, has uh, the short stories, the C.B. Green short stories, and a number of other stories I've published uh, in a number of places. You can get it from there, and you can obviously get it through iUniverse.com. Well, Bill, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was fun. You made it easy. Well, that was Bill Capron. He is the author of his mystery thriller, The Colorblind Detective. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Word from the Wise, Parenting with Proverbs, and the author is Dina Cerniglia, and Dina joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dina. Hello. Well, good to have you with us. I'm going to read a statement you wrote about your book. Words from the Wise is a parenting book that utilizes the book of Proverbs and focuses on the parent first. Now, that is different and unique, I'm sure, instead of focusing on child behavior. And I also like what you said 
in your book, we don't need the experts to tell us how to raise our children. We need our grandmothers. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That kind of sums up a lot right there. But before we get into some of the details, tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I think today we're so focused on raising happy children instead of children with character. And in today's society, we're really straying from the old value systems that worked uh, in raising children. Um, You know, we, we hear time and time again, kids don't come with a manual, but they do. And the book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom that touches every aspect of life, excuse me, including parenting. Um, so I utilize Proverbs to, uh, to get back to the traditional values that worked so well in raising children with character. So there really is a how-to guide, you believe, found in the Bible, especially with the book of Proverbs. Absolutely. The Bible can be so overwhelming that uh, we, we don't really pick it up anymore. And the book of Proverbs is so clear, concise, that we really should be getting back to it and utilizing it. So I, I just I took the, the simple messages of, of life and applied it to parenting, where, we, uh, where we're missing it so much today. We really have to work at it, don't we? I mean, it, it isn't something that has to overwhelm us, but we can take a little bit each day, just like if we work out a little bit each day, and we can get stronger, and we can work out more and more, and pretty soon we go, oh my goodness, I've lost all this weight, and I feel better. Well, it's the same way with our spiritual lives. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And I do discuss my journey in raising children, absolutely, but also my journey in finding God and a church, and because that also can be very intimidating. So this book is perfect for new Christians, um, and and not just for new parents, but new Christians, uh, newlyweds, um, single parents. I was raised by a single mom, so I talk about my journey and trials and tribulations of being raised by a single mother, and and how God can really fill all those empty spots in our lives. And you say that this book is not written by a professional who has never changed to blow out diapers <laughs> because of their toddlers came down with the tummy bug. But this book is written by a real mom with real dilemmas and can relate with every other overwhelmed mother out there. So you're just kind of sharing your tricks of the trade. Absolutely. I had three children um, in the span of three years. So, and, and you know, my generation, we are a generation of women who went, went to college and we had professional jobs before we became wives and mothers. And, you know, it's very hard going from a self-centeredness to the discipline of being content with parenting and being a mother. And, you know, we live in a society that is telling us we can have it all. And that is not what God says at all. We, we, it's impossible to have it all. Um, it, it's really much easier when we take the time to just focus on the most important things in life. And the most important job on this earth is raising human beings with character. Well, let's talk about some of these Proverbs. Now, how did you go about deciding which Proverbs you would use for your book? Well, I took a class at my church on Proverbs, and I was in the middle actually writing my book at the time, and it just, it just spoke to me. 
And like I said, it's just so simple and real and applicable to life that um, I thought, wow, um, everyone could use this, but we're just not picking up the Bible anymore. So I really wanted to utilize it because really who, who are we to say how to parent and who am I to say I've got all the answers? Well, I really don't. I, I need God and everyone needs guidance in, in raising human beings. And since he created us, um, he gave us the manual to, to raise us also. And it's so important, as you said, to build character and not just happy children. It's important that we want our kids to be happy, but we also want them to be based on true principles, right? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And they can be happy too then, even though they may, you know, obviously we have to correct them. That's right. And, you know, God's ways lead to a fulfilled heart, a happy heart even in trials and tribulations and, um, you know, we we learn how to persevere and pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and and rely on God during those hard times. And, you know, God never says it's just going to be, um, life isn't easy, and that's why we need God. So, yeah, we're not always going to be happy, but we always have God to rely on. And And when we raise our children, realizing that, they're, they're better equipped to deal with life. And we have to learn to listen. Yes, we have to learn to listen. And that's my first chapter is based on listening. And actually my first chapter is the longest chapter, and it focuses on the parent, not on our children. So before I even get started with the ins and outs of, of parenting and what works and what doesn't work, I really focus on us the parents. And sometimes, you know, we're raised with dysfunctional families or um, just things that we've never dealt with by the time we have children. And then when that added stress is there, because raising children can be stressful, it seems as though all of this starts starts rising to the surface. And now all of a sudden we need to deal with that also. So um, I really touch on how full is your well and how important a relationship with God is. I'm just going to go through the six sections of the first chapter with you. So how full is your well? So the first, it's, I broke it down into six inventories. So the first one is personal inventory. Are you listening? So this is where I found myself with children and having problems to deal with and finding my way to a church, and, and finding my way to God, and um, personal inventory too, do you still hear your wedding bells? So I touch upon how important it is to have your marriage uh, first before children. Um, inventory three is what is your ego saying? And it's just what are, what are your philosophies in life? And... How do you conduct yourself in life? Because we can have belief systems that are passed down to us from our parents or from friends that, that aren't the truth. And then personal inventory four is money talks. Are you listening? And what's your relationship with money? Because we can find ourselves um, sometimes in debt, which is what our society is going through right now. Because we try to p- replace God with stuff. 
And um, self-inventory five is, have you answered the call of discipline? So, you know, before we can teach our children to have discipline, we need self-discipline. Personal inventory six, what is your personality saying? We each, we're each born with a, with a, diff- a different personality, especially a different personality from our spouse. So we really need to come together and raise our children together and put our own personalities sometimes um, on the back burner. And sometimes, you know, what we hear in our heads as, as right and truth is not always what's right. So with our own personalities, we, may, we might be type A or type B, and we, <clears throat> we normally marry our opposite. So when those struggles come in where we have to compromise, and that's not, a, that's not always easy. So that's um, the last inventory is what is your personality saying? Well, let's take one of your proverbs, one of your shorter proverbs that we can, you can read and then talk about why you included that proverb. You saw that as important, this important principle, this wisdom from God that would help us be better parents. Proverbs 5, verses 1 through 2. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. As I've stated in this chapter on the well, if you're not in constant communication with God, Society's voice will ring louder. I'm going to give you two personal stories on how society can warp our sensibilities, and one is my husband's and one is mine. So, um, so here, you know, our television, the media, um, commercialism, it can really get us to take us away from, from the truth, which is God's word. And um, so this, this proverb is saying Stay close to, to me, and I'll show you the way. And give us another one. Proverbs twenty-one, twenty-three. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. And I have <laughs> nosy rosy here. Um, minding our own business. You probably have one or no one. Children are curious sponges. That doesn't make it acceptable for children to hang around the kitchen table, eavesdropping on adult conversation. Nosy Rosie wants to know why your sister is in timeout, who you were talking to on the phone, and what the bill was. You may mistake this for genuine concern. It is not, and they need boundaries. When they are caught lingering in the kitchen around adult coffee talk, tell them to scat. The information that you are providing is very direct, but it's also simple and the kind of insights that we might say is common sense, but at the same time we forget, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. We get, you know, we're so busy. We're so tied up with all of our obligations that uh, it's easy to stray away from common sense. And so God's Word, you're saying, keep us, keeps us focused. If we'll continually take in His Word every day, just like we take in good food, if we don't eat good food, we won't be healthy. We've got to take in His Word and, and make sure we don't take too much of the world in and, and stay focused on our real, real responsibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And raising children is probably the most important responsibility we will ever have on this earth. You also say it's most important to heal our life tragedies, to heal them, I guess get rid of them before we pass them down to our children. Yes. And we can do that? You really believe people can do that? 
Um, I do. I don't think we can get rid of them. They'll, they'll always, you know, be in our, in our memory um, through our experiences. But I do believe that we can heal them, that God can fill that void um, or that hurt or that pain that we need to have happen in our lives in order to have the, the patience and the compassion and the diligence to, um, to not, sometimes we, to not take it out on our children or feel frustrated when we don't heal the past. Um, it, it trickles into every other aspect of our life. Um, we'll expect our husband to make up for um, our childhood, or we'll find it difficult to deal with tantrums because our well is empty. Now, you've also published a workbook to go along with the book. Yes, I did. This, this is actually more for churches to lead classes. I'm I'm actually uh, teaching a class at my church, and I'm designing a parenting course for First Care, which is a pro-life organization for single mothers. Um, so it's actually more for um, a Bible study. So this is a how-to book focused on getting help from God to raise our children to make sure that they're raised upon true principles, and, and you're trying to build character in them. At the same time, we become better spouses, you say, and even better human beings in general. Yes. Uh, on the journey of finding out um, <clears throat> who God was and how he wanted me to raise my children also came the great gift of how I was supposed to be a wife and how I was supposed to be a friend and a daughter and a sister, and, and of course, a mother. Well, Dina, tell us how to get your book. You can find it on my website, wordsfromthewisebook.com, selling both the book for the hardcover for twenty four ninety five and the soft cover for fourteen ninety five. And they can get the workbook there also? Absolutely. It's being published right now. And, of course, people can get the book through iUniverse.com as well as other online bookstores, I'm sure. Yes. Absolutely. Well, Dina, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for the opportunity. That was Dina Zerniglia. She is the author of her book, Words from the Wise, Parenting with Proverbs. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.